Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be here this morning. How about you? All right. So a few weeks ago, I had an incident with a couple of my kids. And I don't want to throw them under the bus by naming names and telling you which ones they were. But if you picture this story in your mind as I'm telling it, and they look the same, and they're both seven, your picture will not be that far off. Like, these two exist right now in what appears to be a permanent state of living on the razor's edge between having the time of their lives playing together and wanting to murder each other. And it doesn't seem like the line between those two things should be that thin, but somehow it is. And a while back they were playing what appeared to be a game of tag with a rubber football, just whipping at each other in our living room. And I didn't think that was a very good idea, and so I told them, no, we're done, we're not throwing this ball in here anymore. But when I cut off the game, apparently one of them had been hit an extra time, and he didn't think that was fair. He felt like the only fair thing to do would be to let him pelt his brother one more time so that it would be even, but I'm a cruel, heartless father. And I said, no, we're not throwing that ball in this room again. And I assumed that would be the end of it until I walked away and saw one kid bracing for impact and turned around and just in time to take a football right to the middle of me. And it's just, yeah, but I was quickly reassured, oh, sorry, Dad, I didn't mean to hit you there. I was trying to hit him in the head. I was like, that makes it so much better. But as I laid on the floor of my living room contemplating just the string of poor life choices that had led me to that moment... The only thing I could think was, was this song from a terrible 90s band called Right Said Fred. And those of you who are familiar with them are probably confused right now because they were a total one-hit wonder and their only hit was called I'm Too Sexy. But I was, I assure you, not laying on the floor thinking, I'm too sexy for my shirt. That wasn't it at all. They had, a, they actually had another song that I always thought was funny that was called I Love You But I Don't Like You. And that is the only thing that was going through my mind as I looked up at my little Tom Brady wannabes. Like, I love you so much more than I could possibly describe, but in this moment, I'm not feeling a whole lot of like. Like if a kidnapper breaks into our house right now and tries to take you, I would give my life to defend you. But if a kidnapper doesn't break into our house and try and take you right now, I'm going to go hide from you for an hour in a closet and read ESPN on my phone. That's just part of being a parent. I think it's also part of being a kid and a sibling and a family member and a human. We all have I love you, but I don't like you right now moments. And we all inspire those moments in other people. But there's something beautiful about knowing we're loved even when we aren't being very likable. There's something even more beautiful, though, and significantly more profound in knowing that somebody out there likes us and loves us. Because we all have these moments, and not just moments, but whole relationships where we feel like we're loved, but we're loved by compulsion. Like there's somebody who, who loves us and they care about us, but they really don't like us that much. And that happens sometimes with grandparents or aunts and uncles. Sadly, it happens with parents. It happens with siblings a whole lot. It even happens in church communities, and tragically, it happens inside marriages. 
It's good to know that we're loved on some level, but it's hard not to experience this sense of rejection when we feel that the love is reluctant because it's required. I can't help but wonder how many of us feel that way about God. How many of us have been told for a really long time that God loves us, but deep down we wonder if he wants to. We feel like, yeah, sure, God loves me, but he has to. The Bible says God is love, so he doesn't have a choice, but I doubt that he loves me willingly. Because we look at ourselves and our lives and all the mistakes that we've made and all the things we would have done to offend him, and we just convince ourselves that his love is kind of big and general and universal, but it's not very affectionate and it's not very warm because we're not very likable. And so sure, God loves us, but he probably loves us a little bit begrudgingly, right? This morning, we're in week three of this series we've been in called Fresh Wind, where we're walking through maybe the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, Romans 8. And we're seeing how the Holy Spirit of God sets us free from this old way of living where we feel like we have to earn our way to God. We have to achieve some sort of self-righteousness and by our own effort merit the love of God. And what we see in Romans 8 is that that's not the case at all. The Holy Spirit actually does for us what we can't do on our own. And the key from getting where we are to where we want to be to the places God has for us is not to row harder and harder and harder in an attempt to get ourselves there. It's simply to raise sails and allow the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to propel us toward the lives God says we were made for. And this morning we're going to continue that series by taking a look at one of the greatest inhibitors in our lives to raising sails. And here it is. One of our greatest obstacles is skepticism about what the Spirit says. This obstacle is not an inability to hear the Holy Spirit. It's not an inability to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit amidst all the other chorus of voices out there in our world that are clamoring for our attention. It's not an inability to understand what the Spirit is saying or an inability to put it into practice. It is an inability at a core heart level to believe that what the Spirit is telling us is true. Because there's this idea that God pretty passionately wants to communicate to you and me that's really hard to believe. And we read about it in Romans 8. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to Romans 8. If you don't have one, no worries. The words will be on the screen or you can follow along in the revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids need one, they are free at the next steps table. We would love for you to grab one before you go. We're going to be in verse 12 this morning. And as you're looking that up, just a little bit of background in case you're here with us or watching online for the very first time. Romans is a letter written to the brand new church in the city of Rome by a guy named Paul who spent his whole life rowing really hard and fighting to get it right until he crashed into Jesus and realized the fight had already been won and he just needed to let the Spirit work through him. And this is what he writes in verse 12. He says, Therefore, now, quick time out. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we should stop and say, what is therefore, therefore? And here is there's a, like what I just wrote is the foundation for what I'm uh, about to write. And what he just wrote is the stuff we talked about last week. That our world is full of a bunch of different voices that feel like they're pulling us in a bunch of different directions, but they can actually be boiled down to two voices. There's this voice that Paul calls the flesh. This voice that ultimately leads us away from God towards sin and death. And there's the voice of the Holy Spirit that leads us to life and beauty. And so Paul's like, therefore, in view of the fact that that's true and there are these two voices, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. 
This verse requires a little bit of clarification because it kind of sounds in English like Paul is saying we have an obligation. It's just not to the flesh. It's to something different. And the only natural different thing would be the thing that he's continually compared throughout this chapter to the flesh, which is the spirit. That verse almost reads like Paul saying, we have an obligation to the Holy Spirit, except that's not what he's saying. And that's, what any, that's not what anybody ever says in the Bible. We're told that we're led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, lifted up by the Spirit, and loved by the Spirit, but not that we're obligated to the Spirit. And the idea that we are or might be actually runs in the direct opposite of what Paul's trying to communicate in this little section we're looking at today. What he wants us to know is that our motivation for following God is something entirely different than obligation. But it's tricky to get that out of that verse because of the way it gets translated. The Greek, though, literally says, brothers and sisters, an obligation we have not. And so it might be less confusingly translated, we have no obligation to the flesh. Or I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He says, so don't you see, we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. There's nothing in it for us. Nothing at all. So Paul's whole point in this little section of Romans is that our old way of living is done. It's over. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us equips us to live into an entirely new reality. That's where he's going. And so what he's trying to get us to understand in verse 12 is that for a Jesus follower, sin is an option, not an obligation. After you've given your life to Christ, it's an option, not an obligation. And let's be real, if you're anything like me, it's an option you choose on a daily, if not hourly basis. I don't want to poke and prod too hard this morning, so I'm not going to ask how many of you yelled at your family members in the car today, because statistically it's like 100%. But like, why don't we just have an honest, vulnerable moment as a community by a show of hands. How many of you chose the sin option at any point during the last week? A bunch of filthy sinners. <laughs> It'd be hard not to take that personally as a pastor, like I'm failing. If I didn't know that the reality of our world is that this line between flesh and spirit does not divide believers and unbelievers, it runs right down the middle of every single human heart. Yours and mine and everyone else's too. But what we got to understand is that we don't have to choose sin anymore, ever again. Before we knew Jesus, we did. It really wasn't an option for us. There wasn't a way to escape that compulsion to listen to the voice of the flesh and head in the direction it led us. And that doesn't mean that people who don't know Jesus have to go out and murder someone every day and just do terrible things. It just means that outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, there's no way to escape the velocity and the weight of sin. But there is for us. It's not an option that we have to choose. We still choose it, sometimes because of ignorance. We, we fall short of God's standard because we didn't know any better. Or sometimes we choose it because it's a habit we are just struggling to break. Sometimes we choose sin because... We're weak, and we know better, but we don't have the strength to choose better. And sometimes we choose sin because we're listening to the wrong voices. And those voices are shaping longings inside our heart, and those desires are pointing us in a direction, and that direction is sin. There are any number of reasons that we choose sin, but we don't have to. It is an option, not an obligation. That's the good news. The bad news is we have no good excuse for picking the sin option. See, when you said yes to Jesus, you got rid of all your good excuses. Before you said yes to Jesus, you're like, I'm just a human. I couldn't help it. 
Like to err is human and perfection is divine. It's just like, it's how I'm wired. This is just who I am. But not anymore. Not if you've said yes to Jesus, it's who you were. Now sin is an option and it's an option you chose. It's not cool. It's not okay. But there's more good news on the way. In verse 13, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What he's telling us is this, this life according to the flesh, this life that every single voice out there in our world, in our society, in our culture leads us to, isn't real life at all. It's death and separation from God, and there's no living to be done in that space. But by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we can actually be putting to death our evil desires and our bad habits and our sinful patterns. The 17th century theologian and professor John Owen summed up Romans 8.13 like this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's an awesome thought, but it's not something we can do on our own. We need God's help, but with God's help, we can actually make progress. We can move from where we are to a point where we choose that sin option less and less and less. But less is the operative word in that sentence. Because I don't think any of us on this side of heaven are ever going to get to the point where we never choose it and we're perfect. We're just not, but we can get closer to that than we are and we'll find more life with every inch of space we take toward that destination. And we do that through this process called sanctification, which is this big old theological word that simply means the lifelong journey to becoming more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. The Spirit works in us to sanctify us. And there are a whole bunch of other big old $64,000 theological words that people will throw out there when we start talking about pneumodynamics, the way that the Spirit works in our lives. But the actual biggest function of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the single most important reason God places His Spirit inside of us isn't some crazy theological word. It's a really simple concept, and it's what Paul writes about in verse 14. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Because I love these verses because I think they change everything, not just about who I am, but about where my story is going. And they can change that for you too. It's crazy to me. Paul's trying to illustrate how we can like kill sin and live into beauty and hope and meaning and purpose. And so what he could have talked about is how the Spirit convicts us. What he could have talked about is how the Spirit strengthens us. What he could have talked about is how the, the Spirit changes our, our thinking and our desires, and the Spirit does all of those things, but he didn't talk about any of those. He said the greatest way we can move from death and sin and hopelessness to beauty is to understand that the Spirit adopts us into God's family. He makes the love of God tangible to every single one of us by inviting us in. By saying that we get to be sons and daughters of the king. And this is huge, I think, because so often in our world, in like religious systems and irreligious systems alike, we get fed this concept that we're just enslaved to something. And the only life path is just pick 
your master, right? This was difficult sometimes not to, to think that we moved from being enslaved to and, and obligated to sin to this place where we're like enslaved to and just obligated to God. We just got a new a master, but uh, like a way better master, but still, and Paul's going, no, that's not it at all. We didn't get a master, we got a father. And that's a whole different identity-shaping reality. The Spirit moves us from slavery to sonship, from despair to daughterhood, from being hopeless to being heirs. Even though we are who we are. Like even though we're still messed up, we get invited in, not just from like slavery to freedom, but from freedom to family. We're fully loved, fully accepted, and counted as co-heirs to the kingdom, even though we're still all jacked up and we still make terrible choices on a regular basis. Because God looks at us, not through the lens of what we've done, but through the lens of what Jesus did for us. That's why Romans 8.1 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's only justification. When you click that justify button on Microsoft Word, it lines up all the text. And make sure it's perfectly aligned. And you guys, Jesus hit the justify button for us on the cross. God looks at us and sees us as perfectly aligned and set right, even though we're imperfect because Jesus was perfect on our behalf. And so we are what Martin Luther called simulustus et peccator. He's at the same time justified, yet still sinners. I wore my simulustus et peccator shirt today. Some of you may have been wondering, why is he wearing a shirt with a skull that has a crown on it? Because that's me. This is a self-portrait, baby. And not just because me and this dude are rocking the same hairdo. All right? This is actually a picture of every single one of us who know Jesus Christ. We are dead in our sin. But we're going to live forever with Jesus as princes and princesses because we are heirs to the kingdom. We've been adopted by the king. We're dead and we're royalty. My sin killed me. My king crowned me. That is our reality. Like we're still dying because we're sinners. We're still living out the physical effects of sin on our bodies, but we are made whole and we are being made holy by the power of the Spirit of God. And you guys, that is a whole different thing than any other pathway this world has ever offered us. And that's what Paul's trying to help us see. He's trying to help us understand that we not just have like a new identity, we have a whole new motivation for living. We have a whole new purpose in it. Following God looks different when we're children than it does if we're slaves. So what Paul's getting now when he says this, the Spirit did not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Because he fears the primary motivator of a slave. Fear of being sold or beaten or killed for falling short of what the master desired. Fear of, in any way, offending the master who has power over you. Fear is the thing that motivates slaves, but it is not the thing that motivates children. Or at least it shouldn't be. Sometimes it is. As a parent, like on your worst days, you're thinking if nothing else works, I wouldn't mind frightening them into it. You know, like I remember one time when Jimmy was about three years old, we were at this family camp in Wisconsin, and he just would not go to bed in the cabin. And this was not my greatest parenting moment, but I looked at him and I was like, Jimmy, we learned today that there's a grizzly bear that lives at this camp named Stephen, and he eats kids who are awake after nine. And it's, it's 9.04, man, so he's probably right outside the door getting ready to eat you. 
And he looked up at me and he looked at the door and he marched straight over and said, get out of here, Steve. So fear. (laughs) Not always an effective motivator. Not always a healthy motivator. And what Paul's trying to tell us here is like so much of our lives, so many of the people we crash into on a daily basis are living with fear. Fear about what will happen if they don't live the way society tells them to live. Fear about what will happen if they don't live the way God told them to live. And Paul's like, we don't got to live through this whole fear grid any longer. We can approach God with an affinity. We can approach God as his sons and his daughters, not as his slaves who are afraid of him. And not only that, like, we can know that anytime we feel fear, we're tuned into the wrong frequency. When fear is the thing that's driving us forward, we are not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit because fear is not in the Spirit's toolbox. I'll say that again louder for the people in the back. Fear is not in the Spirit's toolbox. It is simply not one of the mechanisms God uses to transform us. And there's a reason for that, right? Fear is a powerful motivator. It can get us to do things. All of us have done things based out of fear. Some of them might have been good things. A lot of them were probably bad things, but we did them because we were afraid of what happened or, or what people might think if we didn't do them. So fear can, fear can compel behavior in us, but what fear cannot do is invite us in and inspire us to mission. And when you boil it down, like fear is effective at compelling us to comply, but love is effective at pointing us to our purpose. Fear can maybe make us check the boxes and do the right things, but fear cannot inspire in us a desire to be part of the mission. It just doesn't work like that. And you guys, God is not just looking for a bunch of box-checking rule followers. Don't get me wrong, he's not asking us to disobey the rules, but his ultimate goal isn't mindless obedience, it's relationship. What God wants is a community of people who are on mission with him, using their unique gifts and their unique wiring to make a difference in the world around them, to be a part of everything he's doing every day, to set all things right and make all things new. We were made for mission, all of us. We were created with a purpose, all of us. And we got to get this. Don't miss it. We've been adopted as his children, and the Holy Spirit is at work in us, bringing us into his family and helping us be a part of the family business. Like we're part of a family and we got a family business, okay? We are a people with a purpose. We're a community with a calling. We're a group with a goal. We are a tribe with a task. And that task is to help people meet Jesus and follow him fully. And what that means for you and me, if we know Jesus, is that every single day of our lives and every single place that we go and every single thing that we do, we have the ability to live in a way that points every single life we crash into toward his love, And that's not just an identity change for us. It's a whole motivation change. We're not doing it because we have to. Like, I have to share God with people. We're not doing it because we're afraid. Like, what will God do if I don't? We're doing it because we have a love that we know the world needs. We're not doing it out of obligation or out of fear, but out of this deep, intimate love relationship. That's what Paul's saying when he says, by him, by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, which is a weird little phrase. It's the same word two times in two different languages. One in Greek and one in Aramaic. And almost the whole New Testament is written in Greek, so it's weird whenever an Aramaic word gets thrown in there. But I think there are a couple reasons that Paul uses the word twice in two different languages here. The first one is this. In in Greek, the word for father, pater, is really, really distant and formal. 
And Abba is a warmer, more affectionate term. If you've been around church your whole life, you've inevitably heard somebody say that it should be translated daddy. And that's like, probably fair, at least to some degree. In the original culture that it was written into, it was still a very respectful term, but it was a warmer one. It was one that connoted relationship. Okay? And so I think Paul uses this double word here to make sure that we know that we know that we know we can approach God out of a spirit of affection and not fear. And the second reason I think he puts both those words in there is that Abba is the term Jesus used when he prayed. When we read about him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out before his arrest and his death, he called the Father Abba. And it probably was shocking for his disciples the first time they ever heard him use that kind of intimate language for a God that so many people in their culture felt was so big and so angry and so scary that he had to be addressed in a very formal manner. But Jesus addressed him in this familiar, loving manner as a son would address a father. And Paul uses that word here to let us know we can come into the presence of the Father the same way that Jesus did because he loves us the same and welcomes us in just like he welcomes Jesus. And Paul says the Spirit testifies to that. He testifies that we are God's children, reminds us of it constantly as the waves and storms of this life toss us about and fill us with fear, the Spirit blows like a fresh wind, propelling us toward the lives God says we were created for by reminding us not just who we are, but whose we are. We belong to God's family. We can approach Him with affection, not fear, which is a powerful reality. But I think the coolest thing, actually, about this verse where Paul says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to God is that it indicates this whole love thing is a two-way street. The whole lens of affection goes both ways. You guys, the fresh wind of the Spirit fans the flames, not only of our love for God, but of God's love for us. Like, God loves you. Do you know that? Do you really know it? Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if we could just see ourselves through God's eyes for one day, for one hour. I think if for one second you could see yourself the way God sees you, you would never doubt again, not for a split second, that you are loved beyond measure, but not just loved, loved in a totally different way than we're used to talking about love when we speak of the love of God. I think for so many of us, we've grown up with this idea that God loves us, but God's love is this, this kind of big generalized concept and God still feels so radically other and so transcendent that his love is conceptual more than it is tangible. We've grown up in these traditions where God is is big like that, often traditions where fear is used as a big motivator in our lives, fear of getting anything wrong or doing the wrong thing. And so this idea that God loves us with warmth and affection feels weird, maybe almost wrong. But the thing of it is, Paul could not be more clear here that that's how God thinks of us. I'll be honest with you guys. I have believed my whole life that God loves me. Like for as far back as I can remember, I've known John 3.16 and I thought, yeah, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But for a whole lot of my life, I was just convinced deep down he kind of had to. That his love for me was big and it was generic because God loves everybody. I was super grateful for that, but I just spent a lot of years pretty certain that God didn't like me. 
Then when God looked at me, he just cranked up that right said Fred tune. He was like, I love you, but I don't like you. And I didn't blame him for that one bit for the idea that he loved me reluctantly. Because how could he not love me reluctantly? I know me. I'm all sorts of jacked up. Like, I, I keep on choosing things that are an option, not an obligation to me. And I shouldn't. And I know it, but I do it anyway. I haven't, I haven't conquered those things yet. I am absolutely what Luther was talking about. Like, I know God sees me as justified, but I am similarly used to set Picotter. Like, a messed up sinner. And I look in the mirror and I think, man, I've been following God too long to be this messed up. Like, I'm disappointed in me. And forever, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that a holy God would not look at me and be disappointed too. That, like, if he loved me, he loved me kind of begrudgingly. And if there's any hesitancy to the love, then like is absolutely out the window, right? I've had that sense for a long time. The guy was like, I love you, but I don't like you. And then I went through this season a long time ago where I just read and reread the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I read them and I read them and I read them and something jumped off the page that kind of floored me. Jesus liked people. And not just the good ones. Like he didn't show up on earth and kind of love them in this big arm's length kind of a way. He showed up on earth and hung out with them and ate meals with them and did life with them. And he liked them, even filthy sinners like me, especially filthy sinners like me. And it's clear when you read those stories, that's what changed people. The presence It wasn't like some new set of rules. And they're like, wow, I like his new set of rules better than I liked the old set of rules. I'm just going to follow that. It was the fact that the God of eternity stepped into the human story in love and then liked people. He liked who they were and he liked how they were. And he spent time with them and absolutely transformed them from the inside out. And he invited people to be near him, not so they could be right by him but so they could be right by him. And it changed everything. And if you don't believe that God loves you and likes you, then I just want to point you to something that one of these guys who was completely changed and transformed from the inside out by the love of Jesus wrote. He said that the Son is the image of the invisible God. He said, in Jesus we see everything that's true about God that we can't always see with our own eyes. And Jesus lived out a picture of a God who doesn't just love us but likes us every single moment of his life. And so my prayer this morning for every single person here and every single person walking or watching online right now is that you would leave today believing at the core of who you are that God loves you and God likes you. He does. He likes you. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to thunder in your soul. And that is the message that a whole lot of us struggle to believe. That's the thing a whole lot of us get hung up on because we know who we are. And we're like, man, if God really knows who I am, that cannot possibly be true. He couldn't like me. But he does. No matter where you've been or what you've done or what's been done to you, God still likes you. Listen, that doesn't mean sin isn't a big deal. It is. It's, it's huge. Jesus didn't die for something that doesn't matter. It matters a lot, but Jesus did die for it, which means it's paid for completely, past, present, 
and future. And the Holy Spirit is working in us to transform us, to sanctify us, to help us be more like Jesus, to help us move from where we are to the lives that we were made for and to whisper into our brains on a consistent basis how loved we are and how we are not what the world says we are, but we are who God says we are and we belong to him and to lead us toward hope and toward meaning and toward life and toward beauty and to invite us into this mission to be a part of bringing that beautiful message to the world. You guys, like, you are who you are because God dreamed you up. You are the voice and the imagination of God wrapped in skin. Of course he thinks you're awesome. You're the greatest thing he's ever done. And that's what he believes. And we live in a world that will constantly, constantly, constantly try to rip that away from us. Constantly try and drown out the voice of the Spirit that is speaking that into us. But in Christ, our identity is secure. We may be dying physically because of the effects of our sin, but we're going to live forever as sons and daughters of the King. We are beloved and beliked. That's not a word, I don't think. So don't look it up. But I was feeling it. So we're just rolling it with it this morning. Just walk out of here, believe it. You're beloved and beliked, okay? Henry Nowen said it best. We are not what we do or what people say about us. And we are not what we have. We are the beloved and beliked sons and daughters of God. Believe it. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for rescuing us from slavery and fear, from death and hell itself. Thank you for creating in us space to not live out of fear and not live out of obligation and not live worried every day about whether you like us or whether you love us or whether we're good enough, but to live with a spirit of of love, to live on mission with you because we know who we are. We know that we are adopted. We know that that we're a part of your family. God, thank you for inviting us in. Amen.